0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. you pray with me again? Father, there is... Uh... There's nothing more foolish than a man who is dead set on trusting in his own abilities, in his own strength, his own power. Father, we didn't bring ourselves into being and we cannot take one single step apart from your hand and your power and your planning and your purpose. And that includes what we set out to do this morning. Coming to your word, a familiar text, yes. But even as we come to these words that we have heard over and over again, we recognize our complete inability apart from your spirit, granting us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have said. So, Father, I pray that you would guard my lips Allow me to say only that which is true and helpful. Guard these people's hearts. Allow them to hear what is true and what is helpful. Father, we ask this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet for what I believe will be the last time in this particular section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are still in chapter two. Verse 1 through 10. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. So on the last Lord's Day together, we... We considered one of the most profound statements found anywhere in all the Bible if I can channel my inner Martin Lloyd-Jones I would say that this was the sublimest of Christian doctrine the essence of what Paul thinks about when he thinks of the redemption of God's people the very essence of gospel truth found there in verses 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourself it is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast been saved by grace. We discovered then grace is a gift. Not just the unmerited favor of God, but the demerited favor of God. We had done everything necessary to make ourselves enemies of God, fitted for nothing but wrath, separated from Him, at enmity with God. But that this favor that God has bestowed upon these people, this favor that finds finds its grounding, not in us, not anything about us, not anything that we had done or anything that we would do, this grace, this favor of God that is grounded in the person and the purposes and the nature of God. That this isn't just a disposition. This isn't just a kindness in the heart of God towards undeserving people. But it's a power that acts. The grace of God, it causes things to happen. It strikes its mark. And what we find here is that God had a target and he had a goal in this grace. It says, for by grace, you have been saved. We immediately recognize that the target of this grace was you. That the goal of this grace is salvation. And that this grace has accomplished exactly what it was intended to accomplish in the lives of these people. For by grace... You have been saved. I asked the question last week, well, what part of salvation are we talking about? And the answer, of course, is, well, all of it. You have been saved by grace. You are being saved by grace. You will be saved by grace. From start to finish, it is all the grace of God. And beloved, I return to this this morning because I always have this fear in the back of my mind that we don't truly reckon this. We don't live in light of this, that we believe that grace is a thing that comes to meet us. It's a moment of our conversion, but then we live in our own power, that we graduate from the school of grace. We graduate from absolute dependence upon Christ, that yes, Christ Jesus must come and call me to life. He must raise me up and make me into something new that I can turn and trust in this gospel and be forgiven. That justification comes by grace, but that sanctification comes by works. That I somehow move beyond the purposes and the plans of God. That somehow I get outside of his scope. That Maybe I, there's a point at which the Christian looks to God and says, Okay, Daddy, I've got it now. Take off the training wheels. Beloved, they never come off. It is always of grace. Always the unmerited favor of God, not just in this lifetime, but in eternity. The saints who are around the throne in heaven today, the saints who will be there around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth, we will all know that we are there because of one reason and one reason only, the grace of God in Christ. There will never be a moment when we find ourselves in heaven mistakenly believing that we have earned our place here. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Why was the lamb slain? You'll never forget it. The lamb was slain because I'm a sinner. And salvation, everything from the beginning to the end, it can only be found in him. But It is by grace that you are saved start to finish. But I need to circle back and make one more thing clear. I need to make clear to you that grace, despite what some people seem to believe and what many people seem to teach, that grace is not God lowering his standard for what it takes to earn his eternal blessing. God changes not. And God's standard is and has always been nothing short of absolute perfect righteousness. The wages of sin is death. That's never changed. The way of eternal blessing is always absolute, unconditional obedience. That has not changed. But I'm afraid that for many people we hear this phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what we hear is, is that God comes to us in our sin. And he comes to us in our depravity. And he comes to us in our fallenness. And he comes to us where we've come so far short of his glory. And he says, well, don't worry about it. That his love in some way constrains his holiness. That his love in some way changes who he is as the just judge of the universe, but that's not true. God's absolute standard of righteousness, it never, ever changes. He looked to Adam and Eve in the garden all those years ago. He looked to them and he said, you see that tree there? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Implicit within that is, if you will obey, if you will trust in me, if you'll honor me and walk in communion with me, then eternal life will be yours. But they failed. But their failure doesn't change God's standard. Do you understand? Their failure doesn't change God's program. God is always and will always be the infinitely righteous and just judge of the universe. And his standard is a whole lot higher than I think we sometimes understand. It's infinite. Complete. Holiness. So what he requires of us, what he requires of man in order to enter heaven, what he requires of man in order to earn his eternal blessings, the kind of blessings that we've read about here that God has prepared for us in eternity. In order for a man to receive these blessings, he must fulfill all righteousness. And I'll remind you of what I said all those weeks ago, that in order for a thing to be righteous, it has to be the right thing done in the right way for the right purpose. That's not original to me. You've heard many men say this, but it's healthy to call time, time out for a moment and to consider this. There have been many of times when you've done the right thing and you did it in the wrong way. There's been many times when you've done the right thing, you've done it in the right way, but you did it for the wrong purpose because the only right purpose is for the glory of God. And we must confess when we look at it according to this standard that all of our works All of our righteousness is going to be stained at some level by sin because there's never been one moment when I did all that I did only for the glory of God. With a heart and a mind and a body and a soul and strength that was completely devoted to the love of Him. So again, I tell you, God's standard has not changed. What does it take for a man to enter into heaven? Infinite righteousness. Complete and total holiness. This isn't just an Old Testament teaching. This wasn't a teaching that was left behind in the garden. You remember that Paul wrote in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You are under a curse. Anyone who does not perfectly fulfill every last ounce of what God has commanded, he is under a curse. We know the result of that curse is eternal separation because no unclean, unclean thing can ever enter into the presence of God. Therefore, it will be cast once and for all into the fires of hell, suffering eternal torment. If you have not fulfilled every last ounce of righteousness, every last thing commanded in the book of the law. And we know that in Adam, we already find ourselves guilty, that Adam was our federal head. Adam was our representative. He was the one that had the shot and he blew it, as would have you, as would have I. That our representative blew it, therefore we were all born condemned. We were all born guilty and stained by sin and separated from God. And if that wasn't enough, following the passions of our flesh and the desires of our mind, we charged right ahead off into even more depravity. Christ Jesus comes to reveal to us the fullness of what this law meant. Because it's easy when we just keep it to doing the right things, and we forget about it in the right way for the right purposes. When it's just about doing the right things, men can deceive themselves. We can have all the outward appearances of holiness, the kind of things that please God. And so Christ Jesus comes and he unfolds for us the fullness of the law, showing us its true beauty. But showing us the depths of what it demands and revealing to us that obedience isn't just in the lips, it's in the heart. Obedience isn't just in the hands, it's in the core of who we are. And it's not long before we recognize the blessings of God, the eternal favor of God. It is so far out of reach. It's not a thing that we can earn through anything of our own works. But here's the problem. If you come to a church and they begin to teach about the grace of God and they teach as though the grace of God somehow nullifies the law of God. As if the grace of God somehow comes in and it lowers God's standard. Or perhaps they teach about the law of God as if it can be summed up, as Jesus says, in love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. But then we turn around and define love according to our terms. Define love according to the standard of this world. Again, we lure men into thinking that they can fulfill all righteousness in themselves. Or perhaps if we teach some gospel that teaches that, look, you do the best that you can. And because God loves you, he will lower that standard and meet you right where you are. Therein, you will have earned his eternal favor. That if you do this, if you teach these kinds of gospels, what you will rob of men is the ability to feel their absolute helplessness. Everything that we had taught in the first three verses of this chapter 2, it will mean nothing to them. Do you wonder why men are so offended by this message? Do you wonder why so men shake their heads and shake their fists in anger when we look to them and say, you are dead in your sins. Or even men who have been ransomed from that deadness and say, you were once dead in your sin. Because of the offense of this message, men don't preach it. And because they don't preach it, men don't see their helplessness. You're not taken to the end of yourself to recognize if that's what God requires for eternal blessing absolute and infinite holiness if that is what is required not only to be spared of death not only to be spared of hell but to be welcomed into heaven as a child and a son one who is beloved by god then i have no hope but if we don't preach these truths they will never feel that helplessness they will never come to the end of themselves they will never learn to despair of their own efforts and cry out if this is what it means that i must have someone to come and set me free if this is what it means that i must have someone to come and be my champion My hero, the one to fulfill it for me, because man will always then believe himself to be free. Man will do things that we can do in the flesh. Man will do the kind of things that dead men can do, and they will count those things as righteousness. Now, again, I tell you, I recognize the offense of this message. It's a stumbling block, it's a rock of offense. Men would much rather hear that the Christian life is all about walking down an aisle and saying a prayer and then just doing your best and God will receive your best is enough. That in love, God has lowered his standard. Hey, nobody's perfect, right? Men who come to the text that says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and they hear that as a mitigation for their sin. As if God had created man and said, look, I see their failure. I see their frailty, and I'm being unrealistic in what I'm demanding of them after all. And so I'm going to lower this standard. I'm going to allow them in. I'm going to overlook their offense. I'm going to overlook their sin as if it had never happened. But the perfect law of God is meant to drive sinners to Christ. The law of God is meant to show people their utter inability. The law of God is meant to push men into a corner where they cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If this is the requirements of heaven, then someone else must meet them on my behalf. But we rob men, again I say of this, if we don't push them up against this doctrine. We don't preach this truth to them. They will never cry out for a champion, and a redeemer, and a savior. They will never learn to look and to truly truly relish, revel in the power and the glory and the grace of God. If we turn grace into something that it's not. And sadly, as a result of this, we drive men to rely upon their own works. Now, it's not like the Pharisees. The way that. The way that scripture portrays the Pharisees is these were men who thought that they had done things perfectly because they believed it was all about doing the right things. They believed that they had earned God's favor. Surely they had done enough to earn access into the kingdom of God. Well, the reality is I find very few men who live like that today. I do find men who believe that they have vested in heaven. I've served him long enough. I've attended that church long enough. I've preached Long enough, and therefore I I have earned salvation in some way. But very rarely will you find a man that believes that he has fulfilled all righteousness in and of himself. But what you will find when you take this thing called grace and you turn it into God overlooking your sin in love without any price being paid, without anyone fulfilling his righteousness in and of themselves, you will drive men to rely upon their own works, watered down works. Constantly looking to themselves. And the danger here, going back to the book of Galatians, he says that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. We leave men under a curse and do not drive them to Christ and we do not show them their depravity and their inability, the desperate nature of their estate before God. Again, I say in an effort to spare people's feelings, we rob them of the very thing that they need. We rob them of the very thing that would lead them to Christ. We allow them to remain very comfortable and confident and happy here in this life, not realizing that in the next, there will be nothing but sorrow. So we come here to this text and it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. He goes down in verse nine to say, not a result of works. And so it is helpful for us at this moment and at every moment to look to people and remind them, you have not been saved. You will not be saved. You are not justified before God through the keeping of one single law by yourself. There is not one work of righteousness that you have fulfilled that has earned for you any of God's favor. Do you understand? That your forgiveness, your justification, your adoption into the family of God, none of your works in righteousness played a role in this. You were not saved as a result of your works. So that if you've allowed the devil to convince you of this, if you've allowed the devil to back you into a corner where you came to Christ Jesus in faith, relying upon his grace, and then you tried to walk in the power of your own works, we called you this morning and say, give that up. Chase those things away from your head because the reality is what God demands is much higher than you could ever imagine. And it's a whole lot higher than you could ever achieve. When we do this, when we pretend as though it were something that you could achieve, we belittle the works of Christ. We belittle the price that he has paid and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And so we cry out to each other, despair of even your works. Give up on even your works as a thing that's going to earn you favor with God. And recognize that it's only through his righteousness, Christ Jesus, that you will be saved. His righteousness, not one ounce of your own. That's why he says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. I told you last week that faith are the empty hands that receive all that Christ is for us. That while God's standard has not changed, there is one who has come and met that standard. There is one who has come and fulfilled all righteousness. And it's through the empty hands of faith that we receive that righteousness unto ourselves as if it were ours. As if we ourselves had fulfilled all righteousness. Done all that law and love commands of us. It's through empty hands of faith that we receive this. His works, as if they were your works; his death, as if it were your death. The wages of sin or death, and Christ Jesus paid that price, redeeming us from the curse by himself becoming a curse for us, and then fulfilling all righteousness and imputing that righteousness to us. It's a double imputation. We come into the relationship with what? What did I say? You contribute nothing to your salvation other than the sin that makes it necessary. We take that sin and we give it to Christ Jesus. He receives it, takes it upon himself as if it were his, and dies. He takes his righteousness, doing all that the first man, Adam, failed to do, fulfilling all that law and love commands. He turns to us in exchange for that sin, he gives us that righteousness. So that when the God of the universe looks at us, he no longer sees that sin. He sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of his son. What a trade. What a trade he offers. But that's the story of grace. And that's why it comes through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Did you do your homework? If you go and review those texts that I ask you to study and consider, how is it that this grace of God can always hit its mark? How is it that this grace of God from eternity past can reach into your life and bring about its appointed end, guaranteed, done deal, secure from before the foundation of the world? And at the same time, we can say that this grace will never be yours unless you reach out the empty hands of faith. How can these two things be true at the same time? Now I told you then it's a mystery that we'll never fully reconcile. We must learn to live in the discomfort and the, the seeming tension of our minds as we try to understand these two twin truths. But scripture says, and therefore they must be true. But I ask you to go and consider those texts and try to figure out for yourself what is the this that Paul's talking about? And this, not of your own doing. What is it that's not of your own doing? Is it the grace? Is it the salvation? Is it the faith? Is it all of it? I trust that if you've studied those texts, you've probably come to the conclusion it's the whole of it. Not just the giving of his son for our salvation, not just the offer of salvation in the gospel, but the very hands by which we reach out our hands, by which we reach out and receive this grace, even that is a gift of God that dead men don't reach. Dead men don't believe, but it's a gift of God. He has called us to life and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. We have received this salvation. This, not of yourself, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. We find out there the purpose is why God has done it this way so that no one may boast that the whole of salvation That the whole of this thing that we call redemption, it may all resound to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, I've labored over these last five years to show you how God's zealousness and his jealousness and his passion for the sake of his own glory is not a thing that's at odds with our good. It is not a thing that's at odds with our own joy. That what God is doing and making sure that even in our salvation, even in the faith by which we reach out our hands and receive that salvation and making sure that it all resounds to the glory of his name, he's keeping our eyes off of the lesser and onto the greater. He knows that anything that is here, anything that is not God is going to fall short of his glory. It will not satisfy. And so what does he do? From start to finish, he says, I will always keep before your face the glory of my name. So that every day you wake up and you say, I'm still a Christian. You praise the glory of my name. You behold the thing that will satisfy you. So it's not just for the sake of his own name, but it is for our good. For his glory and our good that he does these things in a way that no one can boast. We recognize what an incredibly humbling thing this is. If you can't tell, I've thought a lot about this. I spent a lot of time wondering and wrestling with why do men find what we preach so very offensive? Why do so many men, they hear what we preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ, things that seem to come straight out of Scripture. Why is it that so much of what we find in Scripture causes men to become viscerally angry? I'm convinced that some of it is because it causes them to rethink some of the things that they once thought about God. Men like to think that they've mastered God, whether we'll admit it or not. I've got God figured out. I've got him in a box. I don't need to learn new things about God any longer. I think also because it challenges some of the thoughts we have about people we love who aren't yet following Christ. But I think at its root, what the, the issue is, it so incredibly humbles man shows us just how tiny we are and just how massive he is. But that's the purpose. 1 Corinthians 1 says that we preach Christ crucified, that this is a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Skipping down to verse 27, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that the whole of this process and choosing the weak and choosing the lowly and choosing the humble and choosing the things that are not and choosing dead and depraved men and bringing them to life in ways that only he can get the glory. He has done all of these things. Why? So that those who boast can boast in the Lord. I've told you before, you are trophies of God's grace. I hope that you have worn that. That any ounce of goodness that has come in your life, including your salvation, that you wear that proudly as a boasting in God. Look at what God has done. I've told you before, one of the interesting things in pastoring a church just up the road from where you grew up is that you'll end up every once in a while with somebody that you knew as a kid stumbling into the church. And I've got to be honest, sometimes the looks on their face doesn't exactly inspire confidence in me. Because they knew who I once was. Even some of you, let's be frank. Even some of you have seen me at my very worst. So that any goodness that comes in my life, any faithfulness that works its way out in my life, you can look and say, look what a mighty God we have. If he could work with him. What a powerful and faithful and mighty God we have. That that's the whole purpose. To take away any ounce of boasting in man and drive us to God. Recognizing that we came to him as a pauper. We came to him. What does he say? You come like little children. What does this mean? You come childishly? No, it means you come like a child. What does a child have to offer? Nothing. Those of you with kids in the house right now, you know they don't contribute a whole lot. They're a negative on that side of the balance sheet. But you come to God like this. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. I got nothing. I come like a child. If there's going to be anything good here, it's going to come from you. That we come to him like a pauper, and we keep walking like a pauper. And yet all along the way, as he continues to work in us, people look and say, what a mighty God. What a gracious God. What a loving God. Let's pour the grace of God in Christ into this man who I once knew. You can treat me nothing. The problem is, for many of us, Many of us have grown up with this concept, this idea, this fear that if we teach men that they contribute nothing to their salvation, not just it's a moment of Christ's death, not just it's a moment of their conversion, but for the whole of their Christian life, that you don't just come to Christ with nothing. You walk on with nothing from your own hands to offer. That What's going to happen is men are just going to continue on in their sin. That's the fear, right? That's the fear of a pastor. If I get up and I look at people and I say, it's all of grace. It's all settled before the foundation of the world. He is leading you from justification all the way into glory. It is all of Him. The fear of pastors is, then I'm just going to end up with a bunch of unholy people. Then they're going to feel like they've just got a license to run around like wild dogs and keep sinning. You feel that tension. I've watched pastors. I, I see them as they come and they deliver the perfect gospel message. They deliver the grace of God at the moment of conversion in ways that I will never be equipped Calling men to come, saying you don't need anything, you don't have anything. Come with empty hands and receive Christ. And then when it comes time to talk about sanctification, all that goes out the window. And it's a bunch of you betters and you ought us. It's a rational fear. Because the reality is there are going to be people who come into a church like this and they say a prayer and they undergo a baptism and they put their name on the rolls and they're not followers of Christ. And therefore they do continue to run like wild dogs and we've got to deal with that. But the answer is not by taking away the grace of God. or Pretending as though sanctification doesn't also come by the grace of God. See, their fear is that if you don't preach about the you us, You better white knuckle this thing. You better learn to hold your nose and eat your vegetables. If we don't preach in this way, it's going to lead to antinomianism. People are just going to run like there is no law. Beloved, I I present to you that it's actually the opposite. That when we preach nothing but a bunch of you oughtas, we present to men a God who is not. A God who allows you to come to him by grace, but then at the moment of your salvation becomes harsh and domineering and demanding and calling you to do things that you still can't do. And eventually what happens? Nuts to this. And then the devil comes in and he begins to whisper in your ear. And what does he tell you? Who could love a God like that? He's harsh. He's not for your good. Because what you've done is you have taken this law of God The law of God that drove you to Christ Jesus and showing you that you've got nothing. I can't do it. I've tried taking that law and making it a ladder and climbing my way to heaven. And I don't get there. And so what do you do? You turn and you cry out to Christ. But then, if you're not careful, you put the thing right back on the wall and try to start climbing again. It causes you to resent him and to call him harsh. And that's where lawlessness comes from. You're not able to delight in the law of the Lord the way that you're intended to. And so, yes, is there a fear that people will just keep living their same old sinful lives? Of course. But I submit to you that it's only once you feel the grace of God, only once you know the security of your salvation, only once you learn to truly rest in Christ, that that law will become a delight. Not a burden, not a puzzle to be put together, not a ladder to be climbed. It becomes a gift of God to show you what your father is like. It becomes a gift of God to show you what it looks like to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can delight in it because it's not a hurdle that you've got to jump over. It's not a challenge that's got to be conquered. It was already conquered in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? It's only then that you can have this healthy relationship with the law of God. I remind you, church, that Mount Sinai came after the Passover. God redeemed his people, sorry as they were. He redeemed them and he walked them through the Red Sea. It was after that redemption that he led them to the law and said, This is what it's going to look like to live in communion with me. That's why we find Paul saying, at this, at this breaking point between the first three chapters and the second three chapters in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, excuse me, 4-1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must know the calling to which you have been called. You must have the indicative before the imperative. You must know who am I in Christ before I can have any chance of walking in holiness. We're going to have any chance of delighting in the law and doing it in the the right thing, in the right way for the right purpose. Your purpose, as long as your purpose is to try and earn favor with God, it's not right. As long as your purpose is to try to hold your place in the kingdom of God, it's not right. The only way you can do the right thing in the right way with the right purpose is if you are resting in who you are in Christ Jesus. That's the call that Paul makes to these people, constantly taking them back. Does he deal with sin in the life of the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. He is calling them to chase out anything that is not holy. But he's doing this on the basis of remember who you are. And then what does he and Christ Jesus call us to do? Let's play this scenario out, okay? I'm running like a wild dog. I'm doing things I ought not do. I'm doing things that don't belong in the life of a believer. David comes to me and says, Remember who you are, brother. You've been set free from this way of life. You belong to the king and you want to honor him. I know that you do, and so I'm calling you to repent. What happens when I say, nah? He goes and grabs Carrie. And he and Carrie come to me and say, Remember who you are, brother. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. You love God. Now walk like Him. Repent. Nah. So he comes to the church. And before the church, he says, Church, here is our brother. He has confessed the name of Christ Jesus. He is one of us. So the church as a whole, we say to you, brother, repent. Remember who you are. And I say to you, nah. What's the next step? Is the next step to send me to a re-education camp? Is the next step to give me a bodyguard that makes sure I'd walk in the right way and do the right things? You look at him and treat him as a non-believer. Why? You're acting like a non-believer. The answer isn't a bunch of you oughta's. The answer is, who are you in Christ? Are you His? Is He working this gracious, sanctifying work in your life? Do you see how remarkably different that is from holding your nose and eating your vegetables? And so we come to this last verse, verse 10. Carrie joked on Wednesday night, we were talking about the length of sermon, and Carrie said, you know, it's, you don't realize what, what we feast on here on Sunday mornings until, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but basically sometimes you'll go and they'll, they'll get through 25 minutes. Sometimes you realize, well, they're done with their sermon, and Josh would have just been done with his introduction. We come to verse 10. What he's telling us here is that you were not saved by your good works, but you are saved for good works. And even those good works are still the grace of God. They are still to the praise of his glory. We are still trophies of his grace all the way through. He's just got done talking about justification. Immediately comes to sanctification. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word for, it ties it to everything that came before. So this is still a matter of why we don't boast. We don't boast in the justification. We don't boast in the sanctification. We don't boast at any point along the way. For, making clear to us that works will come, but they'll come in a way where we don't boast. Where we can't revel and boast in our own works. But it also comes in a way where we don't look to them as a basis for our salvation. See, he's telling us works do play a role in this thing. Works do show up in the picture. But don't get it twisted into thinking that these works had anything to do with your standing before God. This not only prevents us from trying to work for our salvation. It prevents us from falling into despair. I've talked to enough of you to know, and I know my own heart enough to know. There's so many of us that look up and say, shouldn't I be more holy by now? Shouldn't I be more like him by now? Well, This word prevents us from falling into despair. Because what does he say here? He says that we are God's workmanship. As best I could tell, this word is only found one other place in the entirety of the New Testament. This word workmanship. can also be translated as handiwork. Now, we have this concept running all throughout the Bible, of course, this idea that everything that is was made by the hands of God. Psalm 8.3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it's all of God. The handiwork of God, the hand of God is the creator and crafter of everything that is. What do I say when I stand right here with parents as we dedicate our children I read often from Psalm 139, the reality is he has formed you together in your mother's womb. He has knit you together. You're, that you're, you're secretly made in an intricate way, a delicate way. That the whole of creation, and especially man, that we are made by the hand of God. And then all throughout the Old Testament, reaching in to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 9, there's this picture of man as being like a lump of clay, and God as being the potter that is making him. And, and neither ever messed around with it. I've not, but I've watched the movie Ghost. Any of you that have ever made any of you that have ever made something out of a not in the romantic way, but there's pressure that is needed, there's forming there is needed, there is delicacy there is needed, there is carving off that is needed, that we are the lumps of clay, that he is the potter, and he's making us for a purpose. That's the picture of man all throughout scripture. Isaiah 64, 8. O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you're the potter. We're all the work of your hand. But he's not just saying here, he's not just talking here about the whole of humanity. Look, everyone is made once in Adam. You remember how God made Adam, one of my favorite pictures in all the Bible. He forms him out of the dirt. His dirt, by the way, didn't borrow anyone else's dirt. He forms Adam out of the dirt that he has made and leans down and life. And he had formed Adam for a purpose and a plan. To fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with little image bearers and my glory may be known. But he's not talking about just a whole of humanity that's been formed once in Adam. He's talking about us who have been created in Christ Jesus. There's some math or a, an equation that stuck in my head long ago, and I don't remember who told it to me, but they said essentially that everyone who was born once will die twice you're only born of the dust of the ground, if you're only born in Adam, you will die once physically and then you will die a second death. Death of eternal wrath. But everyone who was born twice will only die once. You're born once in Adam, once in Christ from above. Therefore, while you will face, if the Lord should tarry, you will face physical death, but that will be the only. Because it is a conquered foe. What he's saying here is that if you've been recreated in Christ Jesus, all that I'm about to say is true of you. You are God's workmanship in a special way that the rest of the world is not. And this word workmanship is poema. It's where we get our word poem from. And there's some beauty there that I don't, clearly don't have time to unfold for you, but you're a poem. God is writing a poem called you. Putting together a masterpiece. All his creativity. All his power and all his goodness and all his purpose in this poem. A showpiece, a trophy, a masterpiece called the Christian. For we are his workmanship. And isn't this the essence of everything that we have studied from Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 to Ephesians 2.10? It is all of hell. All by His hand. What does it take to make a Christian? The power and creativity and wisdom and grace and glory of God. We are His workmanship. We are His handiwork. And it's in Christ Jesus. And I just write these down quickly. But you'll find that the whole of this thing playing out in Christ Jesus in election, Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ. In Christ, before the foundation of the world. In regeneration, he made us alive together with Christ. In justification, 1, seven, in Christ, we have been redeemed through his blood. The forgive, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In adoption, 1, five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In sanctification right here. Created in Christ Jesus. In glorification in Ephesians 2, 6-7. to So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's a work that he is doing. It is a poem that he is writing. It is a masterpiece that he is building. Always in Christ Jesus. He is the model. He is the form. He is the place. He's making you into the image of Christ. There is going to be... There is going to be specificity. There is going to be differences. There is going to be character. God doesn't call you to himself and then make us all a bunch of robots. That's the beauty of this body that he's building. He's he's pulling funny people and not so funny people and tall people and short people and smarter people and slower people and richer people. Just people from all over. He didn't change who you are. He said, I've created you in this way, but now I'm going to put you in this mold in Christ Jesus that you may look like him. Because you're his handiwork. Here's poem. You're a new creation. He uses the word created there. You notice he doesn't talk about just chipping around the edges. He doesn't talk about just learning some new habits and some new new patterns along the way. He says we are created in Christ Jesus. Created. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old creation was broken and busted. That's all that... Verses 1 through 3 told us you were a part, very much a part of that old creation. You loved the old creation. You loved the old ways. The whole world was on this path and on this pattern in opposition to God. And you fit like a glove. And so that you had to die. And now it had to come a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what he says here. You're something new. The powerful working hand of God. God's workmanship. His handiwork. A poem. His beautiful creation. All of this. In Christ Jesus, that we may be like Christ Jesus. You want to know what God's going to make you like? Look to Christ Jesus. And and I think we've lost our sense of awe and wonder at that. I know that I have. It struck me. I was praying for weed yesterday, which is one of the few moments when everything's quiet. Because the four-wheeler's loud and I don't have anything in my head. And it struck me in that moment. Have I ever thanked God? When's the last time I slowed down to thank God? Not just for my salvation? Not just for the treasures that are waiting for me in heaven, but thanked him that there will come a day when my desires will be the desires of Christ. And I will look like Christ and speak like Christ and walk like Christ. What it reveals to me, the fact that I've not thanked God for that and sometime it reveals to me that I'm a whole lot more comfortable with my old way of life than I should be. And than I claim to be. are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You remember up in verses 1 through 3, it talked about our walking. We were walking according to the desires and the passions of our flesh. There was a pattern. And I said to you then, the walking isn't what makes you dead. The walking is what reveals that you're dead. The walking reveals something about you. Any of you that ever watched zombie movies? You don't understand how the hero can't know that's a zombie. They're dragging a leg behind them and drooling. That's a zombie. Don't go over to them. That the way you walk, your gait reveals something about you. It's the same here. The walk isn't what makes you holy. The walk isn't what makes you his. The walk isn't what brings you to life, but it reveals all of that, the walk. And you're going to walk according to the pattern, the example that Christ has set. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ has suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You're following. You're following this pattern. How do you know what it looks like to love God? How do you know what it looks like to love your neighbor? You look to your older brother, Christ Jesus. And I know how little you feel like him at times because I do. Any of you that ever grew up in a school district where you went to the same school as an older sibling maybe that performed better than you? better athlete, better student, better girlfriend, whatever it was. And it came time, you got into that same teacher's class and they pulled up the roll and they went, Seal, you got an older brother? Yeah, he was taller. <laughs> you know how often we feel like we look nothing like our older brother and surely our father must be incredibly disappointed. We're the black sheep of the family if there ever was one. But I want you to look to the hope of what he's saying here. He is saying that we should walk in them. That should is an ought. That should is will. That should is a guarantee. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? He has prepared these works beforehand. You're his workmanship, you're his poem, you're his masterpiece. He created you for a purpose, and he's going to guarantee that you will walk in these works that he prepared before the foundation of the world. He's got a path, he's got a pattern, he's got a walk, he's got works laid out before you, and he's going to lead you by his power and his grace through every single one of them. It's going to happen. Because he doesn't fail and he doesn't fall short. He chose us in him, verse 4 of chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You will be holy and blameless before me because I chose you before you were born. I chose you before there was a world. I chose you before you messed up. I chose you before you failed over and over and over again. We must preach preach this to ourselves. He's working this thing in us. A thing that's already been accomplished in Christ Jesus. The thing's done, man. You're you're not accomplishing anything that makes you right with God. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. It's settled. So chill out. Chill out. This doesn't mean get comfortable with sin. See, I mean, that's what some of you are thinking, right? chill out and take my foot off the gas. What's going to happen then? He says, come to me all you that are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. He says that I will give you rest for your soul. Rest for my soul. Not rest for your body. You're going to work like a dog. This is a fist fight. This is a marathon race. You will work like a dog. But your soul rests because It's done. It's finished. It's complete. No need for anxiety. No need for frustration. No need for fear. No need for doubt. No need for resist, resentment. It's done. And I'm just walking it out. What a thing. So, How does he do this? I go quickly here. How does he do this? Well, one, Romans 6 tells us he sets us free from slavery to sin. No longer in bondage to sin. I told you that those who are not in Christ Jesus, those who are dead in their sins, they can't not sin. Everything you do is sin. You're a slave to sin. A willing slave to sin. Your will is to do the desires of your father, who is the devil. But the promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, go home and read it. 36, 26, a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. But it starts with a new heart, with a new desire and new affections. Go home and read Titus 2, 11 through 14. He says, the grace of God has appeared for this, that we might become zealous for good works. Surely you know this. Surely you've experienced this in your own life, that things that were once an offense to you. What is, what is one of the things that that causes me to to have concern for a brother and to really want to slow down and have a conversation, when he comes to me, the way in my scenario I said, David comes to me, David comes to me and says, there's this good work you're not doing. There's this good work that you've been called to. For the Christian ought to hear that and go, and I'm zealous to do it, help me. He will make you zealous for good works, things that were at once an offense to you or scary to you. I will make you holy once sounded like a threat from God to me. Now it sounds like the most beautiful of promises. He said, I'll make you zealous. What does Jesus say in John three nineteen? That the light has come in the world, and the world hated the light, and they loved the darkness because their works were evil. But everyone who loves the light, everyone who is in Christ Jesus, you will come to the light. Why? Why? Because you want the world to see that your works have been carried out in God. You want to put on display the things that He has done in your life, so He will cause you to delight in things that you once hated. He will set you free from sin, so that you can walk in them, and then He'll work those things out. Hebrews thirteen twenty one. Now may the grace, of, excuse me. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Isn't that what Philippians two thirteen says? It is God who works in you. To will and to work according to His good pleasure. He gives you the will, then He gives you the working, to walk in the things that please Him. So that we can say like Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. God made me for this. God built me for this. It's Him that gave me the desire to run. It's Him that gave me the ability to run. And when I run, He smiles. What's a good work? It's not just things that happen here. It's running. It's raising your children It's loving your neighbor. It's going to work and working like a dog to provide for your family. It's mowing your lawn. It's not taking up an offense. It's all these ordinary everyday things that are done, the right thing in the right way for the right reason. I want God to smile. I want to please Him. The things that I've done. And we know that, again, it will require great effort. What did Paul say? That I am what I am by the grace of God, but his grace in me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than all the rest. You can look around and say, whatever grace this is that God's given me, I am working, I am striving, I am fighting. But it's not me, but his grace in me that causes the fight. i got to show you one last picture. i got got one last picture. He, He does this through the working of his word. Through the power of his spirit and through the working of his word, he's molding us, he's shaping us, right? In 2 Timothy 3, it says that the purpose behind this word of God that is sufficient for everything that we might need, that we might do these good works. He's molding us by the word of God. He's molding us by his hand of discipline. But I want you to see this here. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing and that she might be holy and without blemish. The picture here is of the church as the bride of Christ. Christ Jesus coming and by the working of his word, he is sanctifying us, he is washing us, he is removing every last stain, every last blemish so that we might be pure and white and holy and clean because we are his. Then you fast forward to the end of the book and you get to Revelation 19. Then I heard a voice that seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What is he preparing us for the marriage supper that we may stand before him bright and holy and spotless and clean and pure. But the text goes on for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Beloved, this working that he is doing in your life, this cleansing, this molding, this shaping, this purifying, this removing of stains, this getting rid of wrinkles in all spots, these good works that he is causing you to walk in, these are all to prepare us as a people for him so that when we may stand before him, we are holy and pure and a bride fit for a king. And the dress that we wear on that day, the fine linen that adorns us in that day is the very work that he worked out in us In this life, do you see it? So that every time you wake up and realize I'm still his and you see before you one more act of righteousness, one more good work that he is leading you to walk in, you do it knowing that it makes him smile and you do it knowing that he's preparing you for himself. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for the promise that in christ jesus it really is finished there's no work left for us to do to be made right with you but we thank you father that you don't leave us where we are that you mold us and shape us and discipline us that by the working of your word that through the giving of elders and pastors and teachers and shepherds that you're working in and through the local church to help shape and mold your people to lead us in acts of righteousness and so Father, I pray that you would continue to work in us in that way, but help us, Father, to do them with a heart of rest and a soul of rest, trusting in all that you have done. Father, we love you, trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.